anybody there. There it goes. I had to restart. <laughs> okay, no worries. Hey, David, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. I'm super excited to get to learn a bit more about you and your latest work. But how's everything going over there on your side of the world? Uh, well, weather-wise, we're, uh, we're heating up. I'm in uh, the valley, San Fernando Valley, um, you know, in, in the valley ah. in California. So, um, you know, we're 20 degrees hotter than everybody outside the valley <laughs> right now. Um, so has that been home for you? Sort of that area, uh, always been your neck of the woods. Uh, it hasn't, I've been here for about eight years. Uh, I was kind of a bit of a nomad in, in my creative life. Um, I was born and raised in Oklahoma city and made my way down to San Antonio, uh, to open a comic book store of all things back mm. in the uh, early nineties. And I had started a theater company there. That's a whole other story. Oh, I love that. Uh, and we and we moved to Chicago. And you know, we we're young and thought we'd give it a shot, and um, moved to Chicago. And after a few years, we actually broke through and uh, ended up on a best of a decade list. Mm. Uh, you know, seven years after the fact. So it's weird that <laughs> you know you make a list long after you've left theater. But um, and then I got involved in uh, indie film, and mm. uh, eventually made my way out to California. Mm. Uh, Originally Venice Beach, I moved out here, so I was living close to the ocean, which was fantastic after having lived in the Midwest for, you know, most of my life. Yeah. So it seems like you've been able to take on a variety of different creative forms. Uh, has it always been writing at the core of that, or did you find writing later in, in sort of your creative introspection? Uh, no, you're right. Um, it's always been writing. I had, you know, I was interested in writing even in... Uh, in grade school, in eighth grade, I, and with my creative writing class, I wrote a hundred page sequel to the Hobbit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and I, you know, it was always, I was always interested in that. I don't know what it is. I got into, you know, role-playing games early on, like you did at that, you know, period Dungeons and Dragons, all the other ones. And which is just about, you know, writing scenarios and problem solving, which is really what writing is. Mm. And, um, so at the core, it's always been writing. I did some acting in high school. Uh, but decided that I did not want to pursue that in college. So I thought I'd take the easier route by pursuing writing. The belief being that, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure I will marry a career woman and I can write anywhere and, you know, in my underwear. <laughs> and uh, that seemed like a big plus as opposed to getting out of the house and auditioning. So, uh, so I went, I went that route and I, um, you know, in, in the writing career, I, I've written in different mediums and I've always kind of pivoted uh, and part of that was following opportunities and successes because you just mm. really don't know what's going to take traction. And I was never afraid to follow opportunities and, you know, learn more about the craft because every medium has a different set of rules and a different sure. sensibility. And it also helped me uh, keep from getting burned out. Oh, okay. I see. So uh, you, um, I imagine that you were juggling a variety of different forms of projects at the same time then uh, from the time you were younger or... Oh, not, not necessarily at the same time. It was a lot of more, a lot of pivoting, um, with some overlap. Um, I had in college, um, inside, instead of theater, I got my degree in, in writing, but I was, I wrote my first novel, first two novels while I was in college, um, which is daunting. And they don't tell you when you're studying writing that you will have homework for the rest of your life <laughs> and you'll be you will have homework on evenings and weekends for the rest <laughs> of your life. And yeah, that's something you realize later and you're like, Oh, right. I need to learn about this. I need to learn about that. And, um, but it's great. It keeps the brain active and yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they, they say that that's one of the things like, you know, writers and historians and philosophers, you know, are able to keep learning new skills because their the brains are so active right. and they don't get locked in. And it's the reason why Michael, uh, Michael Jordan can't hit a baseball. <laughs> right. He just started baseball too late in his career. Yeah. Yeah. To, to learn that skill set. So the basic impulse is still kind of uh, putting stuff on the page. And then there is a, an opportunity to branch out and, and use that initial, I guess, uh, training in the written word in every single facet that you can. Right. Ab- absolutely. Like I said, I'd started off writing novels. I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to landed uh, at a big agency uh, right out of college uh, and I thought well this is it I'm going to write career thrillers the rest of my life you'll mm. find me at the air, you know, airport bookstore and uh, I had a junior agent and that lasted a couple of years and got really frustrating and I happened to uh, work overnight at Kinko's which you know some of your younger viewers may not know what that is but it's a, a yeah. you know 
the 24 hour copy store. Yeah. I was and there after the rebranding just to date myself as well. <laughs> <laughs> FedEx office. Yeah. Yeah. What do you see? FedEx Kinko's and then they got rid of that and became That's right. just FedEx. Um, but I was fortunate working the overnight, uh, that I met so many creatives cause you would have all the musicians would come in there. The sushi chefs would come in there. Uh, the pizza guys would come in there. So I was always well fed. <laughs> uh, they'd get a little, you know, employee discount. Yeah. Uh, all the artists came in, you know, I'm surprised I didn't get fired. I, you know, I have artwork <laughs> on my walls that, you know, Hey, I don't have money for, you know, these hundred flyers for my show, but I brought you this painting and I'm like, all right, <laughs> we'll make <laughs> <You know>? it work. <laughs> we'll make it work. And, you know, just did, you know, trying to do my best to help out the arts. But, um, uh, I met a, a, a young theater director in college and we kind of hit it off and you know because it's a little bit more leisurely late at night and chatted and he was like hey have you ever thought thought about writing a play mm. and i was like well i did theater in high school and that's 90 pages as opposed to 400 pages so <laughs> that sounds actually kind of interesting so i kind of self-taught i read a bunch of plays and looked at structure and bought some books and uh long story short uh, i finished a script we did a staged reading of it. I got some great feedback from uh, some professionals in the area that had moved back there from Chicago. Mm. And um, I used to drive a 67 Cadillac Sedan DeVille. So four door, huge boat, 10 miles a gallon. And uh, a drunk college student backed into side door and didn't want a cop report, didn't want anything. Oh. So he paid me cash and I used that cash to produce my first play. <laughs> And oh, you know, talk about and bootstrapping, around, right? <laughs> I drove around with a you know a, a dented door on the side for you know this you know <laughs> fifty foot long car, um, and I really got the bug. It was great at that time, actually working with people uh, and relearning you know how to do uh, theater. And the the play was I won't say modest success, but it was uh, success. We got you know a great review. We had good mm -hmm. audiences. We had people coming back to see it multiple times, which was great. And then our next play that we put up the next year uh, won some shiny things. And we're like, hey, we're ready to take on the world, right? So we <laughs> loaded up the truck and moved to Chicago. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, so, so I, for the next several years, I, you know, concentrated on playwriting mm -hmm. and, and, and eventually producing as well. That's amazing. So can we talk about what that play was about that, that really gave you the, the spark, the one that you paid with the dented door? Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, it was called Killing Lucifer, and it was about a man who hits a bad streak in his life, and he blames it on an encounter he had on stage with another actor where he kind of slips into a hallucinatory fit, but he believes that this young man is, uh, you know, Lucifer is Satan, mm. and that if he kills this guy, things will be made right. <laughs> and, you know, he, he tracks down the guy, and they agree to meet at a bar, and it's the main character deals with these other patrons and it slips in and out of flashbacks. You know, the hooker is his daughter that had died. And, uh, there's a salesman who you know plays different parts and there's a, uh, you know, a gun dealer that he goes there to meet to, to buy the gun from, mm. uh, you know, so, you know, you have, you know, double roles and kind of kind of flows in and out. And I was fortunate enough that, um, the, the, the director is a college student at the time took the play to his college professor who was like, Oh, I can't, you know, all right, I'll read this manifesto from some guy that works at Kinko's. <laughs> and then he read it and he called me. He's like, I want to do this. Wow. And so we had a professional actor in the lead and managed to find some hobbyists and some younger college students to do it and, uh, and pulled it off. And it was, a, uh, it was, I, I got the bug. I really mm. got the bug. It was really, you know, cause as a novelist, you're not hearing people read your work. Right. I mean, now audiobooks are all the rage, but at that time it was just great going like, wow, I, I, I didn't envision the character doing that, but that makes sense. And, you know, it's like, well, it's all on the page. It's all here. Now that play I think was overwritten. I think it was a little bit more literary. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next, the next play was, you know, much more play-like and a lot more subtext. And that it actually went on to, uh, uh, getting an option and made as a movie. So, mm, oh wow, um, that's so, great. Yeah, so theater led to you know a film, uh, more ass as I like to say, <laughs> and then uh, uh, pivoted back to writing novels eventually. You know, yeah. It strikes me as as maybe you having an affinity for the mechanisms 
of of stories in in a way as you know being as somebody who comes from that kind of role playing inspiration of board games as as well as mm-hmm. you know the literary aspects of it did you feel like you internalized the mechanics of storytelling or do you feel like initially you were coming from a more organic place when you were putting some of these things together well my first attempt at a novel was crap uh, <laughs> and i was told as such so i had to learn but even, you know, learning, because my undergrad was uh, Pulp Fiction school, basically. Like, mm. you know, every, every chapter's got a hook, you know, a character's got a goal. I see. You know, goal conflict, disaster, you know, quandary, action, decision, yeah. goal again. Um, so very well suited to screenwriting and, and that sort of more, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'll, and I'll tell you, though, when you're young, you're like, oh, that's formulaic and it's too you know, on the nose and it's too whatever. So you have a tendency to start writing stuff that's withholding a little bit, mm. right? You actually want to make, uh, you actually tend to write more of a mystery piece that's not like what happens next, but what's going on here. And mm. an audience can only take what's going on here too long before they check out. Mm-hmm. But if they're invested in, you know, a character with a goal and, you know, I had one play where the guy just needed to originally wanted to get a light for a cigarette. Mm. And that's the first, 10 minutes of the play, but he's trying to use that to get inside of this apartment. Right. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the goal and it doesn't matter like, Oh, it's important to him. He gets a light and I'm going to see if he gets it there. You know, does he do it? Yes or no. So I think I would have had a little bit more success earlier on had I embraced that. And it wasn't until, um, I think my, my second play hard scrambled, that I really embraced that. And I certainly embraced it in the screenwriting version of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then that, that's what uh, kind of jump-started uh, some things. But you can learn the craft and structure and that will carry you more than almost anything other than tenacity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so if you can combine craft and tenacity with, you know, insight and, you know, inspiration and, and really working... Uh, you know, to maybe make something elegant. My wife, I, my wife is a screenwriter. Um, and we always talk about, you know, to really get noticed, you have to write something that's singular and undeniable, but sometimes, but at the same time, you're dealing with industries that don't want something that's singular and undeniable. They want something that's close to, or the same as sort of this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's this mer- uh, meets this, right. The, the usual saying, right. right? Jaws meets Men in Black or Jaws meets The Matrix <laughs> I, <you> know, <laughs> with goblins. That used, to, that used to be a way to pitch things and then that fell out of favor and now it's yeah. back. And, uh, you know, NSFW, my latest book, I pitched as, you know, The Office meets A Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. Now, The Office is not a book. Clockwork Orange is a movie based on a book that most people have not read, but they know it's kind of edgy. So, you know, even with books, you know, the cops you use to sell something you try to, you end up pulling something that's uh, more known to the general populace, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you just reminded me of this because we're reading uh, uh, Wrinkle in Time with my son. We just actually wrapped it up yesterday. And uh, Madeline Langle said this really amazing thing that, that kind of stuck with me. It was just this idea that life is a sonnet. And sure, there's there's peculiar patterns that you have to follow, you know, the, the meter, right, of mm-hmm. a sonnet and things like that. But you you have room between the lines to really imbue with your own, mm-hmm. your own thing. And I feel like it's, it's such a concise way of, of articulating, you know, sure it's a life thing. Right. But also just the, the mechanics of something is so important. And I, I feel like me personally, maybe I'm speaking from personal experience. It's so difficult to have the humility sometimes when you're that young to just say, I need to do it this way. I need to, to accept that there are forms that can be followed and that will allow you to do something that's bigger than you in a way. Yes. And I think also when you're younger, you want to be that 1% that it is effortless. Like <laughs> I'm going to sit down and write it my way yeah. and I'm going to break all these rules and it's going to be effortless and people will praise me. And they're just like, yeah, I'm at seeing the story. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> you're like, but, but, yeah. but, but yeah. I, I learned yeah. in all these things. And you're like, yeah. And it's yeah. just, I don't, I don't get it. It's just um, learning to speak that language, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, about I tell you, there's you know the difference. I always said this regarding playwriting and screenwriting. Screenwriting is math, mm. and playwriting is jazz. You can I go off in a playwriting, and you know, and then come back to the main theme, and then go off at these grace notes. And screenwriting's got to be tight because there's so much money spent, you know, on the mm-hmm. page per page. 
that it's got to be, you know, it's got to make sense. And you also have to learn the structure because, you know, the, the first time I was like, well, okay, hard scrambled was, uh, written, you know, more of an indie structure because it was based on a play. So it's, you know, this scene builds on this scene, builds on this scene. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was commissioned to write a, um, a thriller, uh, or I had a friend had commissioned somebody else to write a screenplay and it wasn't going well. And I'd kind of was in semi-retirement at that time, mm-hmm. uh, taking some time away from writing. Um, and I just started spitballing ideas with him. And he's like, do you want to write this? And I was like, dude, you know, I'm, you know, I'm taking the year off and he's like, yeah, but I can, I can pay you and I got a producer. <laughs> and I was like, all right, let me see how thrillers are written. And I took that basic structure and that actually being really comforting knowing that like, okay, I need to aim towards these beats. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I can use my playwriting skill to write this neo-noir dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. And embracing that, and then I had people read it, and it did really well. It, was, it placed, you know, the, the top 10 in a number of big contests. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing I got back was to like, oh, it reads like a movie. Mm-hmm. It reads like a movie. And you start understanding like, oh, right, because you have an internal rhythm reading a movie, and it needs to hit this beat. That's always I say if something's offbeat, you're not hitting those points. Yeah. You're hitting them either early or later. So, you know, um, so it, it, it certainly helps, but I think it took a long time to get to that point to be able to embrace structure. Cause you always feel like, you know, you're doing something that's been done before, but it's, I finally started grasp or, uh, embracing the house metaphor. Yeah. Like every house needs walls. Every house <laughs> needs a roof. It depends on the style. How are you going to decorate the inside? What's the character of the house? Right. Yeah. But it still has to serve as shelter, right? Yeah. And and or is it a cookie cutter or is it a unique, is it an architecture's life dream? And so once you start embracing, like, I, I have some constraints I'm going to play within, mm-hmm. but I can do, you know, all my subversive stuff within that structure, right. then it was very freeing. But it took me a long time to get there. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like there there was just a lot of honesty with yourself about this is what I can do right now. This is what I can what I'm capable of doing, or, or is it just very much going by feeling here and saying like trial and error, learning from people? Cause this is not something that you can do on your own, right? I mean, you, you gotta be receptive to that feedback and you gotta be open or at least have a community of collaborators that, that kind of guides you in certain ways. Cause it can't be done on your own, right? Uh, it, 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 it's hard to, and you know, if you're going off and just writing novel after novel without any feedback other than, you know, form rejection letters, you're not going to grow. And that's one thing I've noticed with a lot of younger writers, like they're not investing in learning the craft, Mm. right? They're not reading nonfiction. They're not learning, you know, certain structure. What they're doing is they're, they're basing their stories on, you know, movies they've already seen, TV shows they've already seen. And I've read so many short stories that, you know, read like the opening scene, teaser scene of a horror movie, uh-huh. right? Which is like, it's all built up to this moment, which should lead into a bigger story, but then the story stops. Mm. And I am, you know, I'm devoted to the craft of, I just, um, I'm a member of the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers Association and I, and I mentor with them, but also uh, I participated in their silent auction and I got two career guidance sessions and two manuscript critiques. Mm. So I had Alina Don Johnson, I'd read uh, YA thing I'd been working on for a long time. And I got great feedback from her because I'm just not as familiar with that world mm. and the business as it is today. Yeah. And I got amazing high level notes. And I'm like, oh, this is going to serve me well the rest of my career. And then I talked with AC Weiss, who wrote Wendy Darling and has a, a collection out, uh, I believe called The Ghost Sequences. And she'd read the new adult book I'm working on. And she was like, yeah, just make sure you do that. You're, you're on track you know, watch out for these pitfalls with historical fiction, do this. And you may be a little bit more sensory input. And I'm like, Oh, you're right. Because I'm still, you know, coming from screenwriting yeah. where you write what you can see and right. hear, right. Yeah. But like taste and smells and, you know, tactile is something that still needs to be, you know, mm-hmm. presented in a book as well as the internal life. Yeah. So, you know, it was just like one was like, yeah, keep doing what you're doing watch for these pitfalls. Another was like, here's where you need to change. Here's what you need to keep in mind going forward. Everything's there, but you need to watch these pitfalls. And, uh, and that was great, but I know some people just aren't interested in still learning. Right. Mm. Yeah. And, and I do think that, uh, maybe it's the pace of, of social media. And I mean, I, 
I follow Twitter voraciously, and I, I mm-hmm. that's really where a majority of, of some of my guests, you know, at the beginning of the podcast came from. And I notice that there is an upswell of, of younger writers who are, you know, they got their second, third novel, you know, early 20s. And I don't know if it's a detriment to, to them to get their work out so soon. Um, how, how, does this, how does this work, you know, or is this an issue at all? I, I know I would say to any younger writers, um, and b- because, you know, you can Zoom now and you can do things, you know, without, you know, leaving your house, that you still need to network. And for me, I think the one thing I would have done differently is finding a mentor. Um, I've mentored a number of people now, and I'm a mentor with the SFWA. And, you know, if I can save somebody a few years on getting published or, you know, point out something like Alina did with me, Alina did with me with my YA book, which I come to find out is more middle grade, mm. which I'm like, okay, there's, there's certain <laughs> things that need to be changed. I'm like, great. Because, you know, I, I, I think, you know, you and I, like, we would read, you know, the great brain or mad scientist club and these things. And then once you hit sixth grade, you, there was, you made the jump to Tolkien mm-hmm. or Anne McCaffrey or these, you know, these thick fantasy books. There was no kind of easing in a YA. Like you were mm-hmm. reading, like, I guess they called like young, I forget what the name, I forget what the name is, but you had, mm-hmm. you know, where the red fern grows and badge of honor and the outsiders, you know, these kind of teen books, but then you, you know, you jump to, like, you know, reading trilogies and, mm-hmm. you know, this epic. So, yeah. um, and I think, you know, Harry Potter kind of changed that, um, you know, for better or for worse, but, um, I forget what the original question was. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I, I think you cover it well. I mean, in, in terms of the answer of mentorship, I think is pivotal. Oh and yeah. I feel like, you know, I, for some of us maybe who are, who are long distance, everything, you know, me over here in Wyoming, mm-hmm. it's really nice to generate connections and, and get right. to, connect with people in a certain way and it's opened things up for at least online for folks who are in more rural communities or out there Mm -hmm. communities uh so you find your people right but i think that there is something to be said about gathering the skills to connect in person as an Mm -hmm. artist as a as a storyteller whatever that may be so that you're actually internalizing things uh to to Mm -hmm. greater effect but yeah mentorship i i do agree is is probably the the pivotal thing that's missing it really is, especially, you know, like I said, I came from, you know, I came from Oklahoma uh, where I, you know, for better or for worse, I knew in eighth grade I was going to have to leave because I was interested mm-hmm. in film and storytelling and there was nothing, there was nothing to support that. Mm-hmm. And I knew one day I would eventually end up in California. I just ended up taking Chicago as a, um, a you know, <laughs> as, a, as a long way station. But that's, you know, Mamet talks about, you know, the best thing you can do is get your work in front of an audience mm-hmm. and that's what we did. And I tell you, my, my craft accelerated because you learn really quickly what works in front of <laughs> a live audience because yeah. they will tell you <laughs> what is working and what doesn't. Yeah. And a lot of those skills still translate, you know, storytelling still translate to, you know, novels and, uh, you know, just storytelling in general. But the mentorship, mentorship and the community is great. I see, I, you know, I feel like I'm, I've been an emerging writer for 25 years, right? <laughs> like we all, you know, you yeah. get just, you get your curse with just enough success to keep going, yeah. right? <laughs> which is, which is maddening, but that's, you know, that's the way of the world. Yeah. Um, but I, at one point I decided I was, um, I had written and directed Hard Scramble, the film, uh, which is a, a fun little indie, a super low budget, but it's mm-hmm. on Amazon Prime. Like eventually it ended up there somehow. Like, I don't know. Um, they, they don't tell me. You just one day Google it and like, there it is. How about that? Um, but I got tired of putting in the work and not getting any kind of reward. Mm. So I decided, you know, I liked teaching, which come to find out I don't like teaching. I like mentoring, mm. which are two completely different things. When you have control under who you mentor yeah. <laughs> and teaching, you don't. And uh, I decided I want to get my MFA because I, I thought I would teach at some point. But I also wanted to join a process where if I did the work, I would be rewarded. Mm. And, and so I, I met a mentor there when I, I um, went back to writing novels. I, I applied under uh, stage and screen because I figured if nothing else, I had a better shot of getting there, but I had a novel I'd been kind of working on in secret that nobody knew about. And, uh, and that got me in. And so I took it with me and that was going to be my master's thesis. And, you know, fast forward, that's, you know, that's uh, my first small press book. Mm-hmm. And, it, and this is the fountain, right? 
That's the fountain. Yeah, okay. look at you. Well, I, yeah. I was making a couple of notes uh, as quick as I could here. But before we get to the fountain, I wanted to ask you one last question about hard scrambled in terms of the collaboration of that process or if you were fairly hands off. And then we can kind of take a deep dive into the fountain and, of course, NSFW. Oh, sure. I'll talk. I'll talk about hard scramble. <laughs> um, you know, and for the for the longest, you know, it was a blessing and a curse because, you know, uh, among, you know, your peers that are trying to do indie films, you know, there's only a few of you that actually get something across the finish line. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you're hoping that that leads to the next project. And there's so many, you know, there's so many factors in there. Butterfly effect mm-hmm. is in full effect. <laughs> and, um, but no, I had, uh, I, I was very hands on. I directed it. Oh, so, okay. Okay. Yeah. They, they called and like, Hey, congratulations. You, you've made the top five in our contest. Cause it was uh, it was creative screenwriting magazine, which is still kind of around in some form or fashion. And they were looking for a screenplay with limited locations, but no special effects. Mm. So I knew that ruled out a horror script. Yeah. Right. So there'd be no monsters, there'd be no blood and guts. So I was like, Oh, they're looking for a play. <laughs> so, you know, I'd been working on hard scramble because I was going to do it indie style in Chicago with the actors. And so, uh, so I got the call, they're going to make it. Um, and, uh, and of course they call and leave a message because I'm not home, I'm working. And so you, you, you get the message like, Hey, this is us, you know, creative screenwriting, give us a call. And you're like, why are they calling? Why are they calling? Like the, like the submission check cleared, right? I mean, they don't, the check didn't bounce. Are they, why are they calling me? Why are they harassing me? Right? And then, you know, you call them back and they're like, Hey, we want to make your movie. And you're like the most incredulous, like, great. I'm all right. And uh, they're like, do you want to direct? And you had that moment of like, no, I don't want to direct. And then you like, when is somebody ask going to ask me if I'm going to direct my own project? Mm. Like I am just as capable of screwing as up as somebody else. <laughs> right. But at least the decisions will be mine. And, uh, so I was walking on cloud nine for weeks and then nine 11 happened oh. and oh, everything no. got pushed for, yeah. And this is small potatoes compared to the, you know, but still you're like, oh my God, like the butterfly effect, right? Mm. Like, I did the work. I got in, I got this, I made it. They want to do it. They're going to fast track it. And nine 11 happens and all the money goes away. Nobody knows what's going to happen. So eventually it got made. And, um, uh, you know, I had some great actors. I had, uh, Kurtwood Smith from, uh, that 70s show and RoboCop, and, Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah dad was the lead. And, right. you know, I had an out of body experience on that, that movie, uh, we're in the makeup trailer and he's getting his fake prison tats put on and he's telling me this RoboCop behind the scenes story. Oh man. And I'm just like, <laughs> I know who I was with and what movie theater I saw RoboCop in. I thought this guy pops, he's popping off the screen Massive. and he's a great yeah. villain. And now he's telling me this behind the scenes story, oh, you know, and a scene where we're, I still quote it, you know, with my friends every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, uh, it's, it's just, it's just funny how, you know, how things happen. But, uh, yeah, that was an amazing experience. And, you know, uh, eventually I spent a year on the B film festival circuit and, mm. uh, you know, it was a great experience. And then, you know, and then you, you're trying to get the next one made and it's, you know, it's tough. Yeah. And, uh, eventually I moved out here and, uh, worked on some other projects before pivoting back to writing novels. So you, you felt kind of after a while, like, like this is something that I've put enough effort into, you know, let's, let's pivot again, or let's go back to the thing. Uh, I guess the well, right. Cause this seems to be really the, the well for you. Uh, Well, here's your, here's your war story. (laughs) Um, I would get the call from a lot of, uh, a lot of my friends and peers be like, Hey, can you take a look at this script? Right. Hey, can you take a look? You know, can you give me some feedback or whatever? And I'm, I'm really quick and, you know, uh, I've been accused of being really smart, but I think, I'm just really quick at trial and error. <laughs> uh, I can figure things out, you know, uh, a little bit more quickly. And I had a, a friend of mine, uh, we'd been drinking buddies for years in the at Chicago dramatist, uh, which was kind of a hotbed for, you know, young playwrights that I, I got into. Uh, I don't know how I got into that when I moved to <laughs> Chicago, but um, I did. And uh, I didn't question their tastes. Hard scramble. The play was actually one of my submission pieces along with an Edgar Allan Poe play. Mm. So they're like, wow, Mamet and Tennessee Williams. It was crazy. <laughs> He sends me this script that's like uh, 160 pages. And I was like, what do you want? And he's like, mm. it needs to be cut. And we don't know what to cut. So like in 36 hours, I cut, you know, 50 pages out of Ooh, it. Oh, man. And my buddy, calls, my buddy calls me and he goes, dude, I don't know what you cut. 
Like I'm reading this and I don't know what you cut. And um, so he gives me a call. He's like, hey, uh, I'm working on a screenplay version uh, of, uh, uh, of my big play. And, you know, would you be interested in, you know, adapting as a screenplay? And I'm like, hell yeah. And it was the story of Emmett Till. Mm. My, my buddy, David Barr III, had co-written uh, an Emmett Till play with Emmett's mother, Mamie. Oh, wow. And, um, uh, and so we spent a lot of time working on that screenplay and eventually we got it in the hands of somebody who got it in the hands of somebody, uh, that was well known, uh, in the industry, well respected, uh, asked if we'd be interested in writing it as a limited series. Mm. And we're like, hell yes, we would be interested in writing it as a limited series. And so I meet him in his office and there are, uh, Peabody's in one corner, Emmy's in another corner, and uh, you know, a statue of him, a little statuette of him as a, a stormtrooper, right? <laughs> uh, and we're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so we pitched the story to him. It goes amazingly well. My buddy flies out for a second meeting. It goes amazingly well. Uh, we're shaking hands, you know, we're going to develop this together. We were, we were going to target, you know, the first wave of Apple TV mm-hmm. programs and I me honestly, I swear to God in my head, I literally thought there is no way we can F this up. <sighs> Famous last thoughts. Right. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately my, uh, my buddy's father got sick and he had to move to back to the East coast and take oh. care of him. And we just couldn't. We couldn't find our rhythm. We couldn't get on, you know, on track. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after about nine months, the opportunity just kind of faded away. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and of course, eventually the Till movie was made, uh, which was great. Um, but I'd worked on that project for probably about 10 years. Oh right. My goodness. Uh, you know, with, you know, adapting into a screenplay and, you know, revi- revising it, doing workshops and, you know, and then being out here and, you know, showing it around and meeting with people and taking meetings. And, um, we had a, uh, Oscar winning director attached at one point and he tried to, you know, shop it around and nobody was interested and you learned a lot about the industry and mm-hmm. somebody else attached to it, but used that to, you know, leverage to get another movie. Right. And then drop that one. So, so it's really, uh, it was, you know, it's kind of the, uh, the opposite of the, uh, the theater community experience. Uh, mm-hmm that I had in Chicago and, you know, I essentially watched, you know, five promising careers go down in flames. And I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm not working. Uh, I, I can't, I need a break from the industry and chasing this. Yeah. And I just decided I'm going to go back to writing novels. Mm-hmm. And I decided, uh, I was going to tackle this YA trilogy. It was more fun Pixar style and I was going to have fun doing it. It was going to be crazy characters and a, you know, in a crazy world and it's set up and it was, I was halfway through the second book when I had submitted the fountain mm-hmm. to this publisher that I'd gotten wind of from another friend of mine from grad school. And that's the thing with grad school is like, I didn't learn anything more than I didn't already know in grad school, but I made great connections and mm-hmm. we all kept in contact. Yeah. And I'm with my publisher now because a friend of mine from grad school that I kept in contact, you know, told me about them Mm -hmm. and I got picked up by them and a friend of mine that was a big fan of the fountain back in grad school had been writing and not submitting for, you know, the last few years. And I read her short stories and submitted them to my publisher on the slide and she offered her a book contract right then. Wow. And she's like, these stories would have died in my drawer had Mm -hmm. you not done that. So the community and networking is so essential, but yeah, uh, yeah, I decided I was going to be done with TV and film for a bit and pivoted back to, uh, of course, I pivoted back to YA and then all of a sudden my adult stuff started popping. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the fountain, right, got picked up and then the pandemic hits, right? <laughs> like 9 11 all over again. There's oh, always something, right? There's always something. So many. Bigger <laughs> than you that you have no control over and you just got to, you know, ride the wave. Um, and then I had that moment where I thought, oh my God, Jaime, I don't have a follow up to the fountain. <laughs> because I've been working on this YA stuff, she might actually want to publish a second book. Mm-hmm. So in kind of a fever dream, I wrote not safe for work. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it's a, and, it's a good place to go here to specifically not safe for work because I was reading the premise of this. It sounds brutal. It sounds amazing. And I, mm-hmm. I'd like to kind of dig a, a bit deeper into 
how this one came to be in that fever pitch kind of energy. What were the things that started coming together for you to come up with the semblance of a story in the beginning? You know, I don't think I've, I've, I haven't told this in anybody in the interviews. Um, I was desperate for an idea and I always feel like, you know, at, at the core of any uh, movie, if you want to write something singular and undeniable, you need to have, you need to have a hook. You need to have a core idea that you can hang all your ideas on and, and entertain. It's gotta be entertaining um, to some degree. Um, and I was, like I said, I was in a, you know, a damn near panic of like, I don't have another book. <laughs> so I started going through all my old files and I found one way I'd, I'd shuffled some ideas and I had a little bit of a structure and it was, it was set in a bar where um, somebody declared they were going to kill themselves uh, in 12 months time. And the guy sitting next to him, like, do you need help? And he's like, <laughs> sure. So they agree to meet at this you know, bar, you know, once a month to kind of check in to see how things are going. And somebody of course overhears them and joins in. And, uh, and so it was going to be a lot of bar stories, right. Mm. in there as well. So I could, I could do a lot of different anecdotes about life and whatnot. And so I just started generating pages, mm -hmm. right. I just started generating pages, you know, my thoughts on relationships, uh, social media, you know, the state of things. Cause, uh, just, just started generating, you know, a lot, stuff about, you know, my own life experiences and, um, just started, I got about 30,000 words in, which is novella length. And I'm still like, I'm not happy with the premise, but I know I'm at least writing and I'm generating pages. Uh -huh. And, uh, these articles started popping up about social media moderators having PTSD. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And a friend of mine from Chicago, we'd seen a lot of live music, a ton of live music. And there was a shooting at a concert and, uh, and it wasn't in Chicago. It wasn't in the States. But she's like, you know, had we been around, we would have gone to that show. Mm. And I just started thinking, oh my God, you're right. And, you know, what, what would that look like? And so I realized with the social media moderator's job and the PTSD and how awful it was, I could use that job as a meet cute, mm. right? And also all the things that I was kind of working through that were going, you know, through the doom scrolling, right? Mm -hmm. um, the things that they would see and how do you cope with that? And, you know, and some of it's based on, you know, people's anecdotes about doing that job, but also just, you know, I want to take it a little further, mm -hmm. um, satirically, but you know, you do that and it's funny until it's not right. Right. And I mean, as we're approaching idiocracy and, and singularity, right. <laughs> At the same time, who would have thought? Line of satire is gone. Yeah. So once, once I decided that would be the setting, it, it just sparked. And I, I cut half of what I'd written and, you know, uh, repurposed the other as I went through and, and wrote it. But I, it, but then once I got that, I knew that was going to be the concept. I just, I ran with it. Mm. And, and let me tell you, I had, I had written a first draft. I'd already pitched to my publisher. She was interested in it. And halfway through the rewrite, the pandemic hit. Mm. Now the two characters in there, part of their coping mechanism is, and this isn't a spoiler it happens early on is they decide to go to get as far away from tech as possible. So they bring in sod and they sod their apartment. They get rid of all the furniture. They don't wear their work clothes inside here. They have a fair day cage for their devices. They bring in plants, they hang sheets. So they can create like basically a hot house terrarium in Chicago in winter. Oh goodness. And I hit a point where I can't escape the pandemic because I'm writing about two people that are isolating mm. by choice. But now I'm in isolation. My family's in isolation writing this. And it, it took me a bit to kind of push through and finish the project. And I'm glad I did. But it's one of those things where there was no escaping, you know, is there no escaping escapism? For me, it was like, is there no escaping reality through yeah, uh, through it, the work immediately. Yeah, the the reality caught up with your work, and and suddenly I imagine it must have been a huge burden uh, to bear creatively and emotionally. Uh, but it seems like you got out of uh, COVID with a book. Yeah, I got out of COVID <laughs> with a book. Uh, my publisher made me an offer halfway through reading it. Mm. Um, I'm super proud of that book. I feel like it was something that if, I, if I'd had the skill set, I would have written. I, I feel like it's really punk rock mm. in some ways. Uh, modern punk rock, if that, you know, that's an oxymoron, I guess. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I was really proud that I kind of, you know, kind of went for it. 
you know, and again, part of that was there was no time to rethink, you Mm -hmm. know, is this once the concept hooked. Yeah. Um, And the response to the book has been, you know, I wouldn't say it's been mixed because the people that finish reading the book are like, this is amazing. I love this. Um, It's got its own style. Um, It's experimental in form, but addresses so many of the things, you know, we're dealing with, you know, school shootings, gun trauma. It's basically, you know, how do you love in the age of trauma? Mm. Right. And that ended up being kind of the thematic thing of it. You know, we so get so desensitized to social media feeds and, you know, people dying in war and all this other stuff. And it feels really helpless is like, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you nurture, you know, relationships in that kind of period? And it's also, you know, the, the initial setup is you have these new temp social media moderators, uh, you know, that have to make it past their probationary period of 90 days to earn health benefits Mm -hmm. and a mystery bonus. So, you know, that talks about corporate abuse because here you have people having to identify body parts for minimum wage. Right. And what's, what's the unrelenting, you know, what's the effect of unrelenting, you know, trauma that you're watching it and having to adjudicate this. Right. Right. So, um, so yeah, so that's where the, that's where it ended up going. And I'm really practicing, you know, worked through a lot of things I think with it or asked a lot of questions. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But for some people the book's like, yeah, it's not for me. The trigger warning list is huge. <laughs> um, you know, one one person in Scotland uh said, "Yeah, I didn't finish it. It was too angry." Mm. And I was like, "Well, we have we have different experiences in our, yeah. our different countries and, you know, mad right. respect. I don't finish most books I start." Sure. But the ones that have finished it have been, you know, it's resonated with them and um I was so proud of getting that Kirkus starred review, but it's like the, I don't know, the the quote on there on the, the the big pull quote on that was like a potential cult classic, and you're like, well, <laughs> I don't know what that's gonna you know am I am I dam- being damned to the underground you know reader <laughs> uh, you know all but demands a second read and you're like oh who wants to read a book you know twice right mm-hmm. you know and, and but I have had readers do that and and then that's been very rewarding and, and humbling but um, yeah so it's. Yeah, uh, I've been going out and uh, on the festival circuit and you know promoting it and doing readings and mm-hmm. and uh, things like that and it's been uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's yeah. been a lot of fun. From the way that you describe it and and the satirical elements of it, I I know that there's a something bold happening here in the way that you're trying to tackle this society that is so broken and so complex. It's a it's a big ask, but at the same time, the reward of getting to the end of that book's got to be got to be phenomenal. Oh, it's, uh, I'm very pleased with how it came together and, you know, but as I'm so, I'm my own worst critic too. So (laughs) while I'm promoting this book in the back of my head, I got this voice going, this thing should be 10,000 words shorter. It should be 10,000 words shorter. I mean, you tried to find 10,000 words to cut, but you couldn't, everything makes sense. Everything pays off. But it's like, it should be, this was supposed to be a shorter novel, Mm. you know, and it's, and it's not, I mean, the book is thick because it's a slightly bigger font for, you know, for Gen X's readability. Right. <laughs> um, so it's only like, you know, 80,000 words, which is, you know, perfect. Yeah. Novel yeah the reasonable it. size there. Um, and the thing with the fountain that has been, uh, has been interesting to watch. Um, it's still selling, you know, it's been out for over a year and a half now and it's still selling well. And, um, uh, the, the premise of that is, and there's a point to me pitching you the premise of that is that, uh, a drinking fountain in the museum, uh, contemporary art in Chicago lets whoever drinks from it create a singular masterpiece, mm. right? It's like fame, fortune, undeniable, right? But shortly thereafter, you may die. So it's, you know, you have four clusters of artists, you know, commercially successful artists like Ross Robar or uh, Bob Ross, and you have, you know, these uh, legitimate, you know, street artists that have been at the craft for a while but haven't had their big break. And then you've got a critic who wants to be the arbiter of taste, mm. right? And, but he's also a failed playwright. So he's like, he's tempted to like drink the water or he wants to champion the water. He wants to be a gatekeeper. He's still trying to figure it out. And it really kind of covers, you know, art. I tackle art, you know, with the capital A, but it's interesting now that years later, that water is a stand in for AI. Oh yeah. Yeah. And now all those arguments of every artist, you know, AI and one of the, one of the people that drinks from it's, you know, her argument is like, well, you know, Johnny Cash, Michael Jackson, they all did drugs. They all drank, you know, they used LSD. What's the difference? <laughs> right. You know, right. I just need the water just to get me over the edge. Right. Cause <laughs> she creates a singular masterpiece, but then can't replicate it. Yeah. Right. And is 
you know, being pressured for the second piece. So anyway, it's interesting to see now that the magic realism has become a stand-in for AI. It's a beautiful um, thing. I, I have a feeling that you're, you're incisive about the way that you, you catch the pulse of, of what's to come. Uh, I, I think that's uh, really enticing, at least the fountain for me. I mean, that's something that we could probably talk about for a little while because it is, it is so intriguing to consider AI the way that it's just reshaping what the role of an artist is, or if they will become a quote unquote engineer as, as they're calling themselves now on, uh, on LinkedIn, typically, you know, you see those folks who are like, yeah, I'm an AI no, engineer. I, I can make the art that you want. Not, you know, <laughs> you not safe for work was written, you know, years ago. And there's a, you know, there's a thing we're talking about the, there's references to an old Soviet era sci-fi novel in there. And they're looking at a framed, uh, uh, copy of the cover. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about, yeah, this is back in the day when they used to paint them before there was, you know, AI engineers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I did a lot of reading on not say, like, I don't read a lot of mainstream news for research. Like I go to like Ars Technica, I read mm-hmm. Wired, I go, I try to read trade journals here and there to see what's coming down the line. Yeah. So, you know, I've had people call me up. It's like, how did you anticipate X, Y, and Z in this book? Like you couldn't have had time to write this. And I was like, well, I'm not, by the time anything hits mainstream, as you know, yeah. it's old news, right? Right. The right. people in the field have been talking about it and screaming about it for years, right? If not Absolutely. decades. So it's just like, yeah, you just got to, you know, know where to look and kind of, you know, do your own spin on what you, how you think things are going to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, David, this has been phenomenal. I got one more question to be mindful of your time here. And I, I really can't thank you enough for sharing the the journey in particular about NSFW and, and the impact that that's reading something like this will have on the way that we view the world and maybe how we can keep our peace of mind in the insanity that's going on all around us. Yes. May I ask, uh, actually, I'm going to ask you two questions. First one being, okay. what, what is, what are you doing right now to maintain your quality of life, you know, in terms of family, in terms of, of finding some kind of emotional health, given that, that we're getting bombarded with so much in this day and age. You know, the, it's, yeah, right. You know, the psychosis of social media (laughs) and, uh, you know, constant bombardment of, you know, different digital agendas and stuff is, um, what I've learned is you have to create your own parallel system within that system. And that is community. Mm -hmm. You know, it is hands down community. Um, reaching out to people, checking on them, having conversations. This is, you know, I was around when, you know, text messaging cost you 10 cents a pop, right? <laughs> and, the, and the joke with comedians there was like, why are we paying for a ineff- more inefficient means of communication? Why is that happening? <laughs> and, you know, the younger generation, even, you know, some people I know, like they get anxious if they see you make a phone call, mm. right? Or they see somebody calling like, oh, I'm not ready. But that's when you actually communicate. That's when ideas are exchanged because, Text messaging, sometimes you're just trading talking points and, you know, text messaging is great. It's like, Hey, pick up an extra gallon of milk or, Hey, we're out of ice cream, you know, while you're there. Right. I mean, that's, that's great. And that's important too. Beer and ice cream are absolutely important, but, um, it's conversation and actually talking, you know, sharing viewpoints in a constructive manner. Uh, and I think that's easier with my community cause it's, you know, writers that are in, you know, film, TV and playwrights and, they're seekers, right? And they're reading other stuff and they're trying to figure out how things make sense. But I think that's hands down, you know, the most important thing and, you know, taking a a bigger overview of it, um, of how things are going, knowing what you can control, not stressing out about the things you can't. And, and also, you know, if you're a writer spending time away from writing, you know, filling the well, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And I think the best way to do that is with, uh, you know, uh, with friends, and colleagues that understand where you are. Uh, Cause sometimes you find that you find that connection better than you do with your family, depending on your background. A lot of creatives are, you know, quote unquote orphans. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they find that, like you said earlier, like the tribe, you find your tribe, right. Mm-hmm. It all comes together in a community. And um, that's actually been the most rewarding thing for me um, with working with whiskey tit and yet uh, the small press is, uh, having a sense of community again with yeah. these small press writers, because I had that, uh, in Chicago, um, in the theater scene there. So that, that's what I would say is like community and reaching out, actually having conversations with people and, and checking in and, and listening, you know, we all have, 
different fears and hopes and dreams, but you know, they're often not that far apart from your own. Oh my goodness. You know what? I'm going to save the other question for another time because we have just scratched the surface. David, I want to thank you so much for, for being just so invigorating in the way that you talk about the arts. And, and this has just been incredibly inspiring for me. And I feel super invigorated personally, like let's go, let's go get some stuff done. Um, but also, you know, for, for not being as pretentious as your, your bio makes you sound, which is a a great line in your bio. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you read the big bio. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, uh, for being a badass, for being honest about, you know, some of these difficulties and, uh, I can't wait to read the book NSFW. I think it's, it's going to be a blast. And I do hope that we get to keep scratching more than the surface and down the road. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, this has been great. And you ask great questions. It's a great interview. And like I said, I'm, I'm an open book. I'm, I don't try to gatekeep the experiences. Uh, and I have plenty of other war stories to share. And you're just like, oh, you, you think somebody's made it when you realize like, yeah, we're all still struggling, even if it looks like somebody has had you know, a bit of achievement. It's, you know, the end result is still really humbling. But I would love yeah. to come back and talk about the fountain. Um, I feel like that was a break a breakthrough in terms of writing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has a special place in my heart and I've got some other fun stories about that one. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and congratulations for doing your thing out in Wyoming and, you know, Thanks. hold Thanks. up in your closet, but still reaching out to the world. That's right. right. That's the only way to be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially this day and age, right? That's right. Well, thanks again, David, for everything. And uh, I wish you the best. Happy writing. I'll be in touch really, really soon. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Jaime. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.